Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. As you all probably know at this point, uh, one of our big vision targets as a church uh, over the next five years, and really in perpetuity until this church ceases to exist and we all enter the kingdom together, is we want to be a congregation who knows the Bible better. We want to know it, we want to honor it, we want to read it. Or in other words, if you stay around here for a few years, I want you to be able to say, I grasp the story of the Bible, I respect it as the authority in my life, I know how to read it, and most importantly, I actually read it. Uh, who's been sticking with the text reading plan? Bible before phone reading plan. That's great. Oh, praise God. That's great. Lots of hands there. It's been a good plan. Thanks to Terrence and Becca so far for, for shooting out some devotions on that. Now, in pursuit of this vision target right here, though, strategically this year, we implemented these weekends called Bible study weekends, where honestly, we just go deeper on the word of God. Like deeper. Like, like this sort of stuff that you will encounter today if you're new here is introductory Bible college level stuff. If I were to teach a lecture on, um, on Romans, which we will be doing today, then this is what I would teach in those 50 minutes to uh, Bible college students. So this is, some of you all don't like this and you're like, oh man, I'll try to skip these weekends. Some of you love it. So here you are on your mark, get set to go. Today, Romans. Today we study Romans. This is a biggie. It's a biggie. Uh, Romans is an ancient letter. Uh, written about A.D. 55, plus or minus a couple years, by one of the most learned religious scholars alive at the time, a man formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. Does anybody know where Tarsus is? Anybody ever been to Tarsus before? One of your Holy Land tours or something like that? So Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. Let's see here. How about some, uh, some light blue there? It's in modern-day Turkey. Northeast end of the Mediterranean Rim. There's Jerusalem for perspective. It's the Galilee area. That's where Paul grew up. Now, why is that significant? Well, Tarsus back then was one of the top two university towns on the planet Earth at the time. It was a place of great learning. It would have been like saying, well, I'm from Cambridge. I'm from Oxford. That's where Paul came from. And they were known for raising up uh, intellectuals and then sending them out into the world, which is exactly what happened to Paul because he went from Tarsus to Jerusalem and he continued his studies under one of the two great Jewish authorities of his time, from Tarsus to Gamaliel. And Paul did so well under Gamaliel that he was initiated into a religious guild called the Pharisees, some of the most respected teachers of the Jewish religion in that time. This guy's the real deal. And not only was he initiated into the Pharisees, uh, he was a rising star, the scriptures tell us, and a firebrand. Until about halfway through his life, when he had a radical conversion experience. According to him, he saw God. And from that moment forward, everything changed for him. He became a Christian. He threw all that zeal into the gospel, 
Did a little rebrand, name change, Saul to Paul. And in my humble opinion, now he's the most influential Christian thinker to ever live, ever. Today, we're Paul Christians. If you were alive in like the 40s or the 50s, I'll, I'll tell you this right now, and you would go around and talk about your faith the way you know it right now, people then would have been like, oh, that's one of those Paul Christians. Because the way we see Jesus is largely how Paul saw Jesus. After all, he wrote 13 of the canonized documents in the New Testament. His understandings of doctrines like justification, sanctification, and resurrection have become normative to us. He was a trailblazing church planner. It's hard to tell how many churches he, he planted, but he planted them in big cities. One scholar says it could be up to 20 different churches. Uh, he's likely the most famous Christian to teach in Asia during his time, read Acts 19.10. He was persecuted, imprisoned, and martyred. I mean, just beat up in all sorts of crazy ways. And today, 2,000 years later, his ideas about human nature, theology, ethics, metaphysics, and epistemology, among other things, are still recognized by over 2 billion people. Just due to something. Kind of a big deal. And it is widely agreed upon that the most significant document that the great Paul wrote perhaps in the history of the church's theology is Romans. Have you read it? Have you read it? Careful if you do, because this book is dangerous. Augustine of Hippo's conversion occurred reading Romans. Martin Luther's theology and much of the Protestant Reformation was shaped and launched by Romans. John Calvin's institutes are a form of Romans. John Wesley's evangelistic method was based on Romans. The Great Awakenings, which were three great revivals in American history, preached a gospel from Romans. Billy Graham's Romans Road was drawn from, any guesses? Romans, right? Did you know that John Adams, the second president of the United States, argues that a sermon on Romans by Jonathan Mayhew is actually what ignited the American Revolution. Uh, John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, written to express themes of freedom and equality during a time of slavery and social reform were inspired by Romans. The Civil Rights Movement, which I believe is the fourth great revival in American history, was fueled by Romans. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used Romans like a battering ram in his nonviolent campaigns for civil rights. And New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay, has, uh, he's written one of the standard books now on how African-Americans read the Bible. And in his book, the gospel of Luke and the letter to the Romans take center stage. He shows how African-Americans built their theology of policing, political witness, and hope on its passages. Uh, so look, y'all, I, I know people, I know people in our church have never read it before, and I really think you should. But I also know people in our church who have read it, who became Christians because of it. Like they weren't a Christian, someone in ch challenged them to read Romans, and then their life was forever changed. So when you look at the writings that shaped our spiritual ancestors, shaped our world, even shaped our church. It's hard to find too many documents more influential than this. This is a picture of the, the Wyman fragment. 
It shows us the power of this letter and how it was recognized for its influence from the very start. It's one of the earlier copies of Romans, not the earliest, but earlier, third century. It's got excerpts from Romans chapter three and Romans chapter four on it. Uh, And uh, this this is is special. The reason why it's special is because most early New Testament fragments that we, uh, we discover were written on papyrus. Papyrus was like the inexpensive paper back then. But this is not papyrus. What the Wyman fragment is written on is this, this thing called vellum, which was the most expensive writing material of the time. And scholars will tell you that the scribal quality of this is exceptional. It's exquisite. It's meticulous. So my point is, is that from the very beginning, someone cared a lot about the message of Romans. And here we are 2,000 years later studying it. Could you imagine writing anything of such enduring significance? Could you imagine it? 2,000 years later, people are still talking about it. Okay, let me just burst your bubble. You won't. You won't. And I won't either. <laughs> this week, I took a look at the top 25 books uh, that are selling on Amazon in 2023. And first off, it's interesting to just do this every once in a while because it tells you a lot about our culture and what people are interested in and what people are buying, how their minds are being influenced. But um, as I looked at this top 25 list, I asked myself, I wonder if any of these books will be remembered 100 years from now, much less 2,000 years from now. Let's just take a look at a few of them. Uh, Coming in at number 25 is uh, Taylor Swift, A Biography for Kids. And my question is, is will this still be discussed 2,000 years from now? Maybe. Y'all don't underestimate the Swifties. You saw what they did with Travis Kelsey's jerseys. I'm not, I'm not, I'm never, I'm, you never know. Swifties are crazy. Coming in at number 16 is Demon Copperhead. This one is actually interesting to me because it's a novel uh, about a poor boy growing up in Southern Appalachia and how he feels completely forgotten by society. Coming in at number 11 was a book called Fourth Wing. It's a series of, okay, and I quote, sexy adventure-filled fantasy novels with dragon riders. So some of y'all into some weird stuff. Uh, Number seven, uh, this is called The Body Keeps Score. Body Keeps Score. It's a book on healing trauma in your life. Not surprised that's a bestseller. Uh, Number two is a book called Atomic Habits, very popular one written by James Clear. I know a lot of people who read this book more than the Bible. And number one was Spare, uh, Prince Harry's biography. And wow, he's so handsome, isn't he? (laughs) We just worship, I mean, I mean, appreciate our celebrities so much, don't we? Now, honestly, I feel like I can safely say at this point, after looking at the top 25, that none of them will be remembered 2,000 years from now. But if Jesus ain't back, Romans will. Romans will. Because again, here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, still boisterously discussing its theology. And here's the thing, y'all. It ain't even a theology book. You know that, right? What is it? What is Romans? It's a letter. It's a letter written to a very small community at the time of about 100 people who can't get along. And this is interpretive key number one for for reading the book of Romans. 
This is where we're going with the rest of our day. So note takers, this is your moment, all right? Interpretive key to Romans is this. It's not a theology book. It's not. There is magisterial theology in it, but it is a letter written to a group of house churches dealing with a very, very specific issue in the city of Rome. And you know what that issue was? Unity. Unity. Can't y'all just get along? That summarizes Paul's message in Romans well. Can't y'all just eat together? Can't y'all just worship together? Can't y'all just be together? Uh, by the way, um, the New Testament is full of ancient letters. So if you don't learn how to read a letter, then uh, you'll miss a lot of what the New Testament is actually about and what's going on in some of these, some of these books and churches. So, uh, so you know how to read a letter? This is the best way I've ever heard it described. Um, it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. You don't really get the other side, but if you listen closely to the side that you can hear, you can start to figure out what's going on on the other side. You ever been in a room before where somebody's on the phone and they're like, you know, you know talking and they're getting into it and all of a sudden you're like, who is it? What's, what's going on? Put it on speaker. You know, like that's... That's basically what we got going on here. Every bit of information you can get about who is on the other end of the phone helps you understand the one-sided conversation. So let's just say you are listening to your friend on the phone. You walk in the room and they're like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Well, tell them to quit fighting over such small stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, remind them that we're family. And family doesn't split up over such small issues. And we certainly don't make a scene in public. If you hear that, you got an idea of what's, what's going on on the other end, right? And that, that's Romans, y'all. This is what's happening in Romans. Someone is fighting over small, uh, over small matters that should not be bigger than the relational bond that they share. If you listen to Romans like a phone conversation, that's what's going on. You have uh, political, ethnic, class, and religious diversity. And people are disagreeing on all sorts of things therein. And because of that, the Roman church is on the verge of splitting into two denominations from the jump. I mean, Christianity's what, 20, 25 years old at this point? They've just bought their first drink and voted in their first election. And we're already splitting into two churches? Paul is not having it. He won't stand for it. So what does he do? He writes this theological tome. By the way, to churches he didn't even plant in order to defend and fight for their unity. Unity must be important to him, huh? Now, yeah, I see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Uh, Tyler, how do you know all this stuff about the people in the Roman church? Well, you can actually find all this out by reading Romans backwards. Backwards, that's right. I said backwards, which is what we're going to do today. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight actually wrote a book called Reading Romans Backwards. Incredibly helpful in this regard. 
Not recommending it though, high nerd tolerance in this book, okay? So you gotta really love this sort of stuff. I'm just sort of showing my work for you here. Uh, But in this book, uh, McKnight argues that if you wanna understand all the theology in Romans chapters one through 11, then you need to understand the people who you're introduced to in chapters 12 through 16. So basically, if you read it backwards, what you'll see is in chapter 16, you meet the people, which we will meet them in just a second. In chapters 14 and 15, you get to see their problems, which we're going to look at their problems. In chapters 12 through 13, you get to see this vision of a peace-driven, unified church that Paul has for them. And it is a beautiful vision. Woo, read Romans 12. Paul is cooking in that chapter. One of my favorite chapters. And then you get to chapters one through 11, where you actually get Paul's theology on unity. All that stuff about justification and sanctification and glorification, what's he writing all that for? For us to just marvel at it as a theology book? No, to defend and fight for unity, to remind them what unifies them. Their salvation, past, present, and future. Justification, sanctification, and glorification, you see? That's what he's after. See y'all ready? You wanna read some of this? Okay, so let's start in Romans 16. We're starting the last chapter. In the last chapter of Romans, Paul does what he does well almost all the time when he finishes up one of his letters. What does Paul do in his last little chapters and verses in his letters? What does he do? Hi, he says hi. Hi, hi, say hi to, and say hi to, and say hi to, say hi, 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 grace and peace, bye. That's, that's Paul. So let's, let's read. And while we read, I'm just gonna underline some names. Notice these names. If, if you really want to, count them, go for it. Here's, here's select passages from Romans 16. Paul says, first, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Uh, give my greetings also to uh, Priscilla and Aquila, my coworkers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them. So are the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church. So apparently there's a church that meets in their home. Greet also my dear friend Epinetus. He was the first convert from Asia to become a follower of Jesus. Give my greetings to uh, Mary who has worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. Wow, they are highly respected among the apostles. Wow, so like top-notch apostles, and they became followers of Christ before I did. So Andronicus and Junia are OGs. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. Greet my dear friend Stachys. I think that's how you say, say that name, Stachys. By the way, millennials, this is a treasure trove of baby names, like, so just go for it. <laughs> Greet Apelles, a good man whom Christ approves. Uh, and, uh, and give my greetings to the believers from the, uh-oh, here's another household of Aristobulus. Okay, so apparently there's a church meeting with him. Greet Herodian, my fellow, my fellow Jew. Uh, greet the Lord's people from the, oh, there's another household of narcissists. Uh, give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers, and to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, that's not a millennial baby name, that's just a dog name, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own. Also his dear mother, so there's Rufus's mama, um, who's been a mother to me, he says. Give my greetings to Asyncritus, to Phlegon, to Hermes, to Patrobus, to Hermas, and uh, the brothers and sisters who meet with them. Greet my, uh, my, give my greetings to Philo Lugus, Julia, Nurus, and his sister, and to Olympus, and to all the believers who meet with them. And we'll just stop there. Okay, did anyone get a count? 
The count? By my count, by my count, there are 28 different people referenced in this church minus Phoebe, minus Phoebe. Because Phoebe's not technically a part of the Roman church. She's been sent to the Roman church on behalf of Paul. This is who's on the other side of the phone, y'all. You see? This is the humanity behind the theology. So real quick, let's just roll through them again. I wanna do a quick roll call, okay? Quick roll call. First, Phoebe, all right? She's special because uh, she's a deaconess in the church in Centuria. Uh, She's the one who Paul has chosen to carry the letter to Romans. It says that she's a benefactor of his ministry, which means she's probably a wealthy endorser and funder of the ministry. Deaconess, by the way, means ministry leader. So she's leading in that church. And the main headline here is that she's sent with Romans, the first reader of and interpreter of this letter was a woman. That's a big deal, especially in a patriarchal culture. That's what your courier would do, by the way. You'd send a letter with somebody who could read because 90% of the empire couldn't. And you would also interpret the letter for them so that they could field questions after and during the reading. There's Phoebe. She's the face of Romans. Uh, next, you have, well, let's, let's circle these two, Priscilla and Aquila, because I, we're going to come back to them uh, in a second. But these are like besties of Paul. Paul already knew them beforehand. We'll see why. And they had a church in their house. Uh, there's Epinetus. Uh, he's, a, he's a Gentile. How do we know he's a Gentile? Because it says he was a convert from Asia, the first convert from Asia. So it's important to note there are Jews and Gentiles in this church. There's Mary number 44. Because... There's just too many Marys in the New Testament to keep up with, Uh, but that's a good Jewish woman's name. So there's Jews in the church. There's Andronicus and uh, Junia. They're interesting, right? I especially wanna draw your attention to Junia because it says that she was exceptional among the apostles. So again, we have a woman at the top of the org chart, a leading woman in the early church of Rome. Uh, You have Urbanus, uh, that means slave in Latin. So there are slaves in the church. Uh, You have Aristobulus, who has a household church um, uh, in in his house. And uh, Aristobulus is a very rare name. There's this this historical study called onomastics. Say onomastics. It's the study of names. Okay, and Aristobulus is a very, very rare name back then. And so because it is so rare, many people believe that this is the elite Aristobulus, who was the brother of Herod Agrippa, who was the king of the Jews, right? If you will. Now, Aristobulus died around 48 to 49, but his household carried on. Many people believe that the church perhaps was meeting in Aristobulus' household in Rome. That's, that's an elite family. Here's another elite family, Narcissus. We're not sure exactly if this is the same Narcissus, but if it is the famous Narcissus, then this is the, the man who rose up in Claudius's, uh, Claudius's uh, hierarchy over the Roman Empire, became one of the most powerful and respected people, but then was forced to commit suicide because people got jealous of him, as they did back then in Rome. Uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, uh, two, two more women. Persis, another woman. I don't know if you noticed, did you know what it said about Persis? It said she was a hard worker. You know who else said it was a hard worker? Uh, four other people. Uh, Mary was a worker, Tryphena and Tryphosa was a worker, and Persis is a worker. Interestingly enough, what's the legacy of our spiritual mothers in the church? They put in the work. There's Rufus. uh, uh, Rufus. Does anybody know Rufus? There's another Rufus in in the New Testament. Do you know who he is? Do you know Rufus? Okay, so if this is the same Rufus, then this is is important. Check this out. Uh, In in, uh, Mark chapter 15, come on now. There we go. Mark chapter 15. 
Um, when Jesus is on his way to Golgotha, it says a passerby named Simon from Cyrene was coming from the countryside and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Guess who Simon' kids were? He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So I don't know if it's the same Rufus, but it could be. His daddy was the one who carried the cross of Jesus to its place. Then, of course, there's Rufus's mama who serves as a, as a, a mother to, to Paul. Um, let's go over here. We've got to keep going. I think Asyncritus was the first name in another household list, and uh, Philologus was another name in a household list. So by my count, one, two, three, four, five, we have five household churches named in chapter 16. Now there may be, is this at all interesting to you? Are you still with me? Do you care? Okay, because we can pray and go get chips and salsa. All right, so by my count, there's, there's five. There's five households here. There may have been more than five households, but at the very least, there's five. Okay, um, if every single one of these churches was held in a rich person's home, uh, based on architectural archaeology, uh, we know that the largest rooms in these homes could hold 30 or so people. So you do the math. Five times 30, at its largest, this theological, uh, just magisterial letter was written to 150 nobodies in Rome. 150. We had 150 kids in the nursery and preschool last week. I've seen us put 150 people in the bathroom on Christmas Eve. <laughs> That's not that many. But I think there's something beautiful about that. Also, based on the uh, evidence, again, we have archaeological, literary, and numistic evidence here. We are fairly certain that these churches were located in the poorer parts of urban Rome. They're, they're, they're located in the hood. It's where the church started in Rome. Uh, the church was mostly poor uh, with some high status folks sprinkled in. This is a pretty primitive map, if you will, of ancient Rome, but I can show you that. So the Tiber River kind of snakes through Rome. There are three places or four places where, the, where churches have been, have, or collections of Jesus followers have been found. Um, right here in Trastevere, uh, right here in Aventine Hill, down here in Via Appia, and up here in Via Flamina. So they're kind of spread out. but just for those of you who care. <clears throat> so, quick summary for you. A few things to note about the Roman church at this point that we learned from chapter 16. Uh, we learned that there are elites, uh, but also slaves. We learned that there are men, but also significant women. About half the names listed are women. Uh, there are rich, but mostly poor. And there are Jews, but also Gentiles. Now, you know what I think? I think that perhaps the most astonishing verse that reflects the diversity of the early church uh, isn't just who's in Rome. It's actually who's together writing the letter to the Romans. If you read on in chapter 16, the authorial team, if you will, behind Romans is revealed. Paul allows Tertius to speak. So I, Tertius, the one writing this letter, his scribe, writing this letter for Paul. I say hi too. Hi. Because also Gaius says hi. Who's Gaius? He's the, he's the host 
for us. He's hosting the whole church in his house. So he's a wealthy landowner. Also, Erastus says hi. He's a politician, the city treasurer. Oh, and also don't forget Quartus, our brother Quartus. He says hi too. Now, you know what Tertius and Quartus mean? Third and fourth. Yes, third and fourth. This is what they would give slave babies as their names. They would name them based on their birth order because they were not dignified enough to have a real name. So we got two slaves, the great Pharisee apostle, Gaius, a wealthy landowner, and Erastus, the city treasurer, uh, treasurer, coming together, unifying to put together this letter about unity and then giving it to this powerhouse woman, Phoebe, whose name means tightness, by the way, and says, Phoebe, take it to the Romans. I don't know, there's just something beautiful to me about that. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Uh, Tyler, what were the Roman churches arguing about then? Well, that is what we're going to talk about next uh, because that's what we get in Romans 14 and 15 as we continue backwards. Now, before I show you Romans 14, 15, we talk it through though, here's the catch, okay? We got, let's just call it like it is. Here's the catch. Everyone loves to talk about diversity, especially today. Let's have a diverse church. It's like the highest, most noble virtue in our culture. If you're not diverse, you're bad. But here's what no one wants to talk about. No one wants to talk about how hard it is to actually bring diverse people together. Everyone likes diversity but no one likes to make the sacrifices necessary to build it. No one wants to be preached to about it. Nobody wants to be called out for their prejudices. I mean, if you're an OG here at this church or you've been in Louisville over the last four or five years, you know this, don't you? People will cheer for diversity just as long as it doesn't step on their toes or infringe on their preferences. And I tell you what, if it ain't easy to build today, it certainly wasn't easy to build back then, but it's worth it. Romans proves to us it's worth it. So here's the story. I'm gonna draw you a little timeline here. Now you can see how bad my handwriting is. Uh, this timeline's gonna go from like AD 30 to AD 60. All right, this is the story of the church in Rome. What gets us to, 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 to Rome, Romans. Okay, so what happens around AD 30? Anybody? What's the answer that you should always give in church? Jesus. Just say, if you're in church, somebody asks you a question, say, Jesus. And you're like, well, that's kind of right. It's Jesus happens. About AD 30 or AD 33, Jesus does his thing, right? We get his ministry. We get Easter. Uh, about 50 days after Easter, we get this thing called Pentecost, where the church is born. And, uh, and on that Pentecost day, uh, in Acts chapter two, we see this mass conversion of 3,000 people happen. Now, in Acts chapter two, it actually tells us a little bit about the, the different people who were, uh, who were led to the Lord that day. It gives us all these different people groups. And it's interesting, right there in the list, we see that in the audience that day, listening to Peter and the gang's preaching were, were, were who? Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So Jewish converts. So, so the historians say, they say, this is where the Roman church started. They listened to Peter's preaching. They confessed, accepted, were, were baptized that day 
in the name of Jesus. And then they carried the way of Jesus back with them to Rome. They went home after the Pentecost festival and lived for Jesus there. Now the next significant day, you know, Roman church is born there on Pentecost. Next significant day is AD 49. Cause you know what happens uh, in AD 49? Uh, Claudius, the, the Caesar at the time, the emperor, he expels all the Jews from Rome, kicks them out. We know this because, not just because the Bible tells us, but because extra biblical historians tell us, like Suetonius. You know what Suetonius says? Suetonius tells us that uh, Claudius throws all the, the Jews out of Rome because of the Crestus issue, the Crestus issue. Now, you know what Crestus sounds a whole lot alike? The Greek word for Christ, Christos. So what many historians believe is that all of these Jews and Jewish Christians were thrown out of Rome by Claudius because the Jewish Christians were stirring up trouble. What kind of trouble were they stirring up? Well, the kind of trouble that Christians normally do. They were probably converting high-profile Romans and Claudius didn't like that. They were probably going into local Jewish synagogues and teaching them that Jesus was the Messiah and converting Jews and the Jews didn't like that. And so there was a collision and Claudius doesn't need unrest in the capital city. So he says, out, out, all of you Crestus Jews, out. And he kicks him out for about four years. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, the Bible actually tells us about this. Um, in Acts chapter 18, verse two, it says, uh, Paul leaves Athens and heads to Corinth. And guess who he meets in Corinth? He meets these two people that, that their names might sound familiar to you. One of them was named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy. Hmm, Italy, what's in Italy? Rome. And uh, also Aquila's wife, Priscilla. And why were they not in Italy? Why were they in Corinth? Well, the passage tells us it's because Claudius kicked them out. So you see how this fits together? All right, now back to our timeline. Um, they're out for about four years. And then at about, about this point, 53, 54, the Jewish Christians are allowed to come back. Why are they allowed to come back? Because there's a new emperor in town, an emperor named Nero and Nero lifts Claudius's expulsion. And here's what happens. When the Jewish Christians get back to the church, it's different. When they left the church in 49, who do they leave behind? Who, who was the church? Gentile Christians. Whatever Gentile Christians were in the church took over from that point. And for four years, they had been leading. So when the Jewish Christians get back, it's just a mess. They're eating pork and shrimp. They're not, they're not believing in the Jewish Torah or traditions anymore. They're not celebrating the holidays. They've got jeans and flip-flops on. They're playing guitars. They got the Jesus smoke and they move the piano from this side of the stage to this side of the stage. They won't stand for it. You think it's funny, but that, this is what happens. This is what happens when they come back. Also, there's been a, there was a leadership vacuum when all the Jewish Christians like Achille and Priscilla got kicked out. So Gentiles had to step up. They're there leading now for four years. Like it is a different church culture when they get back. So around the year 55 to 57, Paul writes Romans. And no wonder it's a plea for unity. These churches have been at each other for some time. 
You know what Romans is about? Romans is about the challenges of integration in a church. Now, are you still following me? Okay, I'm gonna show you. Romans 14, 15, let's go to, let's go to the actual passage because Paul actually lays out to us the two warring factions. There's two, two groups that are at each other's throat in Romans. Paul calls them the strong and the weak. So you can already tell who he likes better than, it's never a good thing to be called the weak. I'm just saying. So you can already tell who his favorite group is. And, uh, and in 1415, he kind of shows you what's going on between them. Uh, the strong are the Gentile Christians and the weak are the Jewish Christians. Remember, Paul's a Jewish Christian, by the way. Uh, the strong um, have cultural privilege. They're the majority normative culture. They've been there. They changed the culture. They built the church over the last four or five years without them. Uh, they're the ones who are recognized, uh, you know, as citizens in the Roman Empire. They, they didn't get kicked out, right? So they've got that cultural privilege going for them, but the weak have religious privilege. We are the elect people of God. Have you not read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? The strong eat meat sacrificed to idols because they've been doing it their whole life. And who cares? We know now in Christ that idols, they ain't a thing. But the weak say, well, no, that's idolatrous. Have you, again, have you read Exodus? Like the whole idolatry thing, it's like pretty central in the 10 commandments. So we ain't eating that stuff. The strong are, are gonna eat non-kosher food, pork, shrimp. They got I me, mean, I'm going to their potluck. And the weak are like, nope, no, wait, hold on now. That's unclean though. Have you read Leviticus? The strong are saying, look, it's Jesus plus nothing. We have, we have Paul's gospel. And, and the weak are saying, well, yeah, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus, but it's also Jesus plus Torah, Jesus plus Mosaic tradition. Basically, the strong are making a case for Christian liberty. The weak are making a case for the Jewish tradition. And so it says that it comes to such a boiling point. These are literally the words from uh, chapters 14 and 15. The strong despise the weak. They despise the weak for their viewpoint. And the weak stood in judgment of the strong. Now go ahead and tell you, if you've got a church dealing with that stuff right there, it's a mess. It's going to be a mess. Now, we cannot be entirely sure which one of these issues were more prominent than the others or what they were arguing about more. But I think it's, it's, a, it's fair uh, to say that there were two specific squabbles that we know were going on because they're cited in Romans 14. One has to do with eating. Romans 14, 2, Paul gives them an example of the squabbling. He said, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. Another person with a, a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. So he calls out an eating dispute, right? What's happening here? Not sure. I'm betting that they've got the church potluck going down. And, you know, uh, Epinetus, the Gentile, offers Mary some bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> and Mary's like, I'm sorry, I'm on the Daniel fast. I'll just take some lettuce, right? And that's, this is how it happens. It's like the people who you go to B-dubs with and you order like 20 wings and a pitcher and they order a salad and water. You just feel judged. They don't even have to say anything. I'm, so I'm doing paleo. Okay. <laughs> Hate you. You're a sinner. Okay. That's, this is what's happening. This is what's happening in the church. So you got the food squabble, and then you also have the squabble over Jewish holidays. Jewish holidays. In the same way it says some think one day is more holy than the other day, while others think every day is alike. So, again, I'm assuming these are Jewish holidays. Um, the Gentiles weren't about it. So oh, back to our table, you see. They despise them. They judge them. It's a mess. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back again. Thank you for your great questions today. Go ahead, uh, Tyler. Uh, when people get annoyed today with their church and other people in their church, 
They just leave and go to another church down the road. Right? So why didn't the Jews and Gentiles just do that? Well, I'm sorry, but they didn't have that luxury. There were about 100 Christians in a city of a million people who didn't like them. They couldn't just run from church discipline. They couldn't mute or block people within the family. They had to deal with those who were very different and deal with leaders like Paul preaching truth. They had to figure out how to live together. It was a matter of survival. The only other option was to nuke the whole thing and split into two denominations, Jewish Christian versus Gentile Christian. And I'm gonna tell you, that's the last thing Paul wants. So he writes them a theological tome and begs them with his words. He says, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, knock it off. It's a matter of living a life of goodness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's who unites us. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you'll please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Chapters 14 and 15. Okay, it's gonna move fast from here. All right, you ready? Do you feel like you understand the historical situation of Romans now? Do you feel like you understand it? Is this helpful? Is this helpful? Okay. So with that in mind, knowing kind of what 14 through 16 is about, hi, everybody, here are the people, and hey, strong verse week, quit judging each other. We can now read Romans backwards and understand why Paul does all the things that he does throughout Romans. Like we can start with chapters one through four, the first big chunk of chapters in Romans. And we can begin to understand why Paul begins in chapters one and two with this gut punch that all humanity, Gentile and Jew is trapped in sin and needs rescuing. There is no moral superiority here. You're all guilty, you're all sinners, Paul says. This is chapters one and two. Then he moves on in chapter two and he says, and guess what? Just this general knowledge of God that the Gentiles have or the Torah that the Jews have, that, that rescue that you need will not be coming through that. No, chapter three, the rescue will happen for anyone through faith in Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus. We'd call what happens there the doctrine of justification. And then in chapter four, he says, and you know what the result of justification is? This is the punch, a multi-ethnic family like God promised Abraham from the beginning, Genesis 12, one through three. Now, knowing what you know about Romans and the, the churches there, are you beginning to see why he hits these points? Very pertinent to his argument. So into this childish game where both sides are claiming the moral high ground and damning their enemy, Paul says, everyone sinned. All y'all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Moving on to the core ideas of chapters five through eight. When we read Romans backwards, we begin to understand why in these next four chapters, Paul spends his time framing up the church as the new Israel the expanded family of God from all the nations, not just one nation. 
Basically, in these chapters, he says God has done for the new family, the church, what he did for old Israel, but on an even grander scale. Chapter 5, he leads them out of the slavery of the sin of Adam, which is a far worse slavery than the sin of Egypt. Chapter 6, he leads them from death to life through the waters of baptism, which is a far more miraculous moment than the walking through of the Red Sea. Chapter seven and eight, we see him lead them through the wilderness of life by the spirit, not the law, but by the spirit, which is a far greater guide than Torah. And then at the end of the chapter eight, we see him lead them into their future transformation, the transformation of all humanity and all creation, the, the true promised land, if you will, which is far greater than Canaan. Do you see, do you see? An adoption has happened in the family of God and it has grown through the Holy Spirit, praise God, because we're the Gentiles, by the way. So Paul says in Romans 8, 15, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we're his children, we're his heirs too. This is why in Romans 9 through 11, when we read Romans backwards, we understand why Paul retells God's story from Abraham to the church of Romans and goes to such great lengths to show how the Gentiles have now been grafted in to God's family. The blessing to all the nations have come through Jesus, the great descendant of Abraham, and it was always his plan, Paul says. So that's why Romans 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jew and Gentile are the same now in this respect, he says. And when we read Romans backwards, we begin to understand why peace is everything to Paul. It's everything. Peace within the church, that's chapter 12, and peace outside the church, that's chapter 13. He calls the church to be a beacon of peace made up of tightly knotted, unbreakably loyal relationships that are on mission together, bringing God's love to the empire. Imagine with what you know now about the context of Rome and the church is there. Imagine Paul writing this to them. He says, don't just pretend to love, uh, love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. I love that line. Weep with those who weep. I love it. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. The letter to the Romans in 44 minutes. Listen, man, that's, that's, a, net, that's a feat for me, okay? And once again, I'll tell you this, it is all about unity. In the face of ethnic, political, class, and religious diversity, and some of the disagreements and tension that comes from that, Paul defends and fights 
for unity. By the way, could you ever imagine a church fighting and dividing over issues like that? <laughs> I'm sure some Christians are capable of leaving a church over politics or race or social status or worship style. Certainly not the Christians of Louisville. And certainly, certainly not the, the Christians of Northeast Christian Church. We'd never leave our family over stuff like that, would we? Oh, of course we would. We know better. You've been in the church for the last four or five years. You know the stories. You have the scars on your life. It's in our, the scars are on our church. Scars are on churches everywhere. And by the way, don't raise your nose in moral superiority because you're still here because none of us are above this. Not one of us. Hey, we're coming out of a season right now in our nation's history that was so polarizing and divisive. It really kicked up, you know, with masks and opening and closing churches and the racial injustice that happened in our city and vaccines and elections and just, oof, temperature, temperature raised fast. And then all that was aggravated by the lack of any sort of civility on social media. And then that was aggravated by the rise of cancel culture as an acceptable way to deal with people that you disagree with. And then that was aggregated, uh, aggravated by the, the fact that we were all isolated at the time. And then that was aggravated by the nasty examples of reconciliation that we got from politicians and celebrities. And then that was all aggravated by the hurt of just watching friends and family leave. For me, honestly, 2023 has been kind of a deep breath. It's felt a little normal again, but we're about to head in an election year. <laughs> and is it going to get ugly again? Probably, probably. So we need Romans. We need it. In a time where everything is like a race war, a political war, a class war, a religious war, a culture war, whatever, the church needs Romans and it's called to peace and unity. We need to be reminded that we are united by the gospel of Jesus risen from the dead, Romans 1. We are united by our shared sin. Not one of us can take the moral high ground, Romans 2. We are united by grace that justified all of us in the blood of Jesus, Romans 3. We are united under God's global blessing he has been faithful to through the ages, Romans 4. We are united in our triumph over sin and death, Romans 5. We are united in our baptism, Romans 6. We are united in our struggle, Romans 7. We are united in the spirit where more than conquerors, children of Abba Father. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. We are united in our story, Romans 9. We are united in our common profession, Romans 10. We are united as one tree, grafting and growing together, Romans 11. We are united as one body, loving and serving each other, Romans 12. We are united in our love and our Lord, Romans 13. And so we fight for that high and heavenly unity, no matter our earthly diversity, Romans 14. 14, 15, and 16. We need Romans. We need it. I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, these days, if you are looking for a tribe, you can find one. I promise you. We live in a time where there are so many groups and causes and stuff you can just be a joiner in. We got folks uniting around politicians. We got folks uniting around the progressive agenda. We got folks uniting around conspiracies. Folks uniting around a shared vision for human sexuality. Uh, we got millions of young women uniting around Tay-Tay. And we got millions of old men uniting around watching teenagers play outside. 
It was a joke. And you know what's interesting is uh, that we got all these big and small tribes, but at the same time, everyone is crying out for belonging. I'm lonely. I need real relationship. I need real community. I can't find it. I can't trust anyone. That's what our culture says. So church, this is our moment because we have Romans and all that it represents. So we should be, we must be a countercultural tribe that fights for unity. Amen? Amen means I agree. So, so do you agree? Amen? Amen. We got to fight for unity, church. We got to fight for it. We can't fight with each other. We got to fight for each other. So at Northeast, we fight for unity. We got nerds and jocks, bald heads and curly locks, but we fight for unity. We got acquaintances and friends. We got a few Karens and a few Stans, but we fight for unity. Somebody help me out here. We got women and men. We got addiction and sin, but we fight for unity. We got the left and the right. We got black, brown, and white, but we fight for unity. We got rich, we got poor, we got some who take notes and others who snore, but yeah, we still fight for unity, all right? We got folks from the hood and folks from the holler. We got folks in shorts, we got folks wearing collars, but church, we fight for unity. We got executive leaders and CEOs. We got stay-at-home moms and average Joes, and we fight for unity. We got boomers, millennials, Gen X, Y, and Z. We got singles, couples, and a whole lot of babies. And we fight for unity, all right? We got singers, signers, smilers and greeters. We got criers and laughers, volunteers and staffers. And we fight for unity. We got people in this church according to our most recent survey from Germany, France, India, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Ireland, Nigeria, Poland, Italy, South Africa, England, Greece, Canada, China, Cuba, Sweden, Korea, Chile, Ecuador, Philippines, Ivory Coast, Finland, Japan, Cameroon, Scotland, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Liberia, Taiwan, Russia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's just what I know about. And, 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 and amidst this diversity though, we must fight for unity, right? And I still believe that unity is possible in this divided day. And Jesus is why, and the Holy Spirit is how. You got him, we got him. The power that unites us is far greater than anything that would divide us. Unity is possible. And I believe that unity is not only possible, it's essential because Jesus didn't just die for your sins, he died so you would be reconciled to one another. There's a horizontal and a vertical beam to the cross, isn't there? And I believe that unity is not only essential, but it's also beautiful. Because you see, when we bring together a multi-class, multi-ethnic, multicultural, intergenerational collective of sinners united by grace, and when we bind ourselves eternally, eternally to one another as family, we give the world a vision of the family it's longing for. So that's why at Northeast, one more time, we fight for unity, amen. So let's sing this whole hymn to the God that unites us all. Amazing grace. Take it, church. I need my harmonizers. Oh, right.
Holy Spirit, sweep through the hearts and the relationships of this church and bring us closer together. We want to fight for unity, but we are so weak when it comes to the sin inside of our hearts. So we need your help fighting. Remind us today through Romans of what unites us, the justification that's already been won for all of us. We've all been pronounced innocent, thanks to Jesus. The sanctification that the Spirit is doing in all of our lives as he brings us up and brings us together. And the glorification, the hope we've been promised one day in the future for all of eternity. We're stuck with each other forever, God. (laughs) So bring us together now. We love you, Jesus. We look to you as we leave today with a unified mission to show the world what you can do in a human heart and a human community. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray and that we go today. Amen. All right, thank you, church. That's all we got. On your way out, in the spirit of Romans 16, why don't you ask somebody their name? A lot of names in that chapter. And then go love the Ville. We love you all. Have a good week.